Lord, as we come to your word now, we ask that you would speak to our hearts, use it to guide and encourage us, to direct us. Lord, help us to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. The day after Christmas, whether we call it Boxing Day or St. Stephen's Day, is usually a day when we're still in Christmas mode. We're still remembering the birth of Jesus. But we're also reflecting on the year which has passed uh, as we begin to look forward to the year which is ahead. And as we reflect on the world around us, our, our thoughts will range from our personal situations to the bigger issues in the world, issues of truth and justice, issues of poverty, beyond that even issues of redemption. We long for many things to change. We long for injustices to to be made just, for wrongs to be righted, for truth to be known. But as we long for these things, there is a right way to long for them and there's a wrong way to long for them. There are two ways to, to seek justice. One we're seeking, where we're seeking justice on its own and the other where we're seeking justice and salvation in the context of a restored relationship with God through faith in Christ. There's two ways to seek justice, one on its own and the other with God in the picture. The title of this morning is Our Hearts Long for Jesus. Not just for justice, but for Jesus. C.H. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon writes in his daily devotional for August the 2nd. You can get his morning and evening devotional and many people have found that it's very helpful to read a bit in the morning and read a bit in the evening each year. But as we read for... August the 22nd, he writes, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And therefore, supremely blessed are those who thirst for the righteous one. Blessed is that hunger, since it comes from God. If I do not experience the blessedness of being filled, I will come again in my emptiness and eagerness until I am filled with Christ. If I do not yet feed on Jesus, I will continue to thirst and hunger after him. There is a hallowedness about that hunger, since it sparkles among the Beatitudes of our Lord. But the blessing involves a promise. These hungry ones shall be satisfied with what they desire. If in this way Christ causes us to long after him, he will certainly satisfy those longings. And when he comes down to us, as come he will, how sweet it will be. That's part of what he says for August the 22nd each year. And when Christ comes to us, as he, as he will, how sweet will that be? Longing for truth and righteousness, longing for justice in the world is connected with, but it is not the same thing as longing for Jesus. There are many people who campaign for what is right, 
There are many people who seek justice for their own cause. One seeking justice for this cause, another seeking justice for another cause. And in some, to some degree, we can join with them because God is a God of justice. The issues which they are seeking to, to right, the, the wrongs they are seeking to right, the causes that they are seeking to promote, there is behind these certainly issues of justice that we can join with them in seeking resolution, seeking improvement, seeking change. Justice is close to God's heart. He tells us in Isaiah 1, verse 17, to learn to do good, to seek justice, to help the oppressed, defend the cause of orphans, fight for the rights of widows. But very often, though, when people campaign for justice, it's not God's justice, God's righteousness that they have primarily in mind. It's so often mixed, causes are so often mixed with a bit of self-righteousness, even condemnation on those who, who don't fully support them or even those who oppose them. It's not God's justice that they seek, but justice where they are the ones being proved righteous and just. And too often also there's a sense of empowerment where those who are campaigning are not just seeking justice for their cause. But what tends to happen is that the spokespersons or the, the organization, the group that's promoting a cause, tends to want to get power for itself. Well, they start off as a group trying to promote a cause. Later on, the cause is what promotes them. Such situations highlight that justice is never alone. Justice needs someone to give glory to. And when people don't give glory to God, they end up receiving glory themselves or seeking glory and power themselves. Justice is never alone. It serves the purpose of giving glory to the one who administers it, the one who is in power. Doing good, working for good causes ultimately either promotes someone like the activists themselves or points to someone higher. That can be a leader who takes the glory among the activists or it can be God. And we ought to give the glory to God for everything and anything that we do. Even if people praise us for one thing or another, we oughtn't to let the praise settle on us, but Bat it back up to heaven, giving the glory to God. Ultimately, we ought to give him that glory and we ought to seek justice from him and give glory to him. Jesus says in the parables or in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. God is the one who ultimately satisfies the hunger of those who yearn for justice and righteousness. God is the one who gives his identity to those who are peacemakers. There is a relationship between justice and peace in its truest form and a relationship with God. 
Jesus says later on in that same chapter, in that same speech, that Sermon on the Mount. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. When we campaign, we ought to give glory to God. Let others see our good works by all means, although don't promote them. Often do them as much as we can out of the public eye. But when they do see them, let them give the glory to God, not ourselves. Campaigning for justice can't be separated or divorced from the one who truly administers truth and righteousness. And secular campaigns often end up focusing on one individual or group and giving them glory or prominence. But godly campaigns will give glory to God, either publicly or privately. Godly campaigners and activists seek God's justice above all else, not their own, and they give glory to God. In longing for justice, if campaigns edge God out, sin inevitably places the focus, the power, the glory onto some individual or group. And that's why so many freedom movements around the world end up, as we said, instead of promoting a cause, a just cause, they end up promoting themselves. We ought to keep God in the picture, keep God in the focus. And be careful that we're not gaining prominence or power ourselves in anything that we do. Our longing for justice needs to ultimately be a longing for God. A longing for Him. A desire for Him. Because ultimately truth and justice come from Him. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. They shall be satisfied with God and his presence, his peace and his rule. When we take God out of the picture, though, we don't end up, as many people say, just focusing on justice and truth without getting complicated with religion. What we end up doing is actually getting less instead of more. Many young Christians, many middle-aged Christians are, are finding that in trying to live in an, a world which is changing, that sometimes they don't feel that the old, old story of the gospel, the truths of God, really fit in the world that they're living in. And so they turn their back on, they gradually shift away and drift away from the truths of the past, the truths of God's word. One person, Ian Harbour, felt led to move away from Christianity's roots towards progressive Christianity, as it's called. But in a blog, he described how he found that progressive Christianity was more shallow than the Christianity he was dissatisfied with. His faith was not strong in the face of attractive messages to reject the old, old story and embrace the new progressive evangelicalism. He found that, though, that was a false hope. And he writes, I'm not anti-woke or anti-therapy. Systemic injustice is real and we need the conversations that wokeness has brought us. 
But these are not adequate replacements for the eternal love of the triune God. He continues to describe the problem of seeking justice without God, a worldview of wokeness without worship. And he quotes one person, Mark Sayers, who says, and he says that Mark Sayers describes the progressive vision of the world as the kingdom without the king. We want all of God's blessing without submitting to his loving rule and reign. We want progress without his presence. We want justice without his justification. We want the horizontal implications of the gospel for society without the vertical reconciliation of sinners with God. We want society to conform to our standard of moral purity without God's standard of personal holiness. We need God in the picture. And we need to seek him. We can't have one without the other. At the time of Jesus, when he was brought into the temple in Jerusalem, the Jews had many concerns in their day as well. These things are not unique to today. And there was a man who was longing for the consolation of Israel, Simeon. At that time, the political situation was such that the Jews were under Roman occupation. In a real sense, although they had returned from exile some hundreds of years beforehand, they were still not free. They were under Roman rule. The Jews, the Israelites, had struggled and had been under oppressive rule from when they were in Egypt and needed Moses to deliver them to having the, the onslaught of other kings and other countries around them attacking. They had a golden era during the, the era of King David, which extended into the, the kingdom of Solomon, his son. But after that, well, they suffered. They suffered exile. There was the Babylonian exile and the Assyrian exile. And yet they were allowed to come back to Jerusalem. The temple was rebuilt, but they still didn't feel free. And here they were under Roman rule, either through a puppet ruler or governor like King Herod or Pontius Pilate. And as you can imagine, there was a movement back then. The zealots sought to motivate the Jews to rebel against the Roman Empire and expel them from the land. Zealots were not just zealous from a political motivation, they were actually Pharisees with a bit of political movement added on. And we know from here that when you add politics into religion, it's an unholy mix. According to the historian Josephus, they agree in all other things with the Pharisaic notions but they have an inviolable attachment to liberty and say that God is to be their only ruler and Lord. That sounds very plausible. God is our only ruler and Lord. But when you expand that out, that means that they will not sit under the worldly rule of whoever is in power at that time. They want to be in control 
Romans 13, they needed to hear that before it was written. That we need to submit to authority. It was well known then as well, but they wanted a, they had a Romans out policy. You can imagine it on the walls. It was certainly in their minds. And what was billed as religious motivation, our only ruler is God, it was in fact just a dressed up political motivation so that they would gain power themselves. It was a wolf in sheep's clothing. A sheep, a wolf in sheep's clothing. A sh- yeah. It was politics and power in the guise of religious zeal. But at heart, it was politics and power that they were interested in. Even the disciples, after all the years they had been with Jesus, after seeing the cross and the resurrection, they asked Jesus, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Even the disciples had got the wrong mindset to some degree. They thought that the Messiah was going to bring them political freedom and restore an earthly kingdom. They didn't realize that David's kingdom was not the be all and end all. It symbolized, it illustrated the kingdom to come, especially to the kingdom in the new world where there will be no more sin or sorrow. They wanted to go back to what symbolized the kingdom to come. They didn't want to go forward to the kingdom that was to come. But Jesus wasn't preoccupied with political power. He wasn't concerned with with such things. He was concerned with God's agenda, God's salvation to redeem his people, to redeem all who would trust in him. And in that context, Simeon had that thought in his mind as well. We read in Luke chapter 2, verse 25 to 26. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Simeon was looking for the comfort, the consolation that was promised to God's people. It was promised through the prophets such as Isaiah who said, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. While others focused on the national and political freedom that they sought, Simeon saw more than that. He saw spiritual salvation, which was wider than just the political situation in the, in, the, in the land. He saw that the Messiah, the Christ, would be the Savior, not just of the Jews, but wider than that. Not only would the faithful Jews be saved, be redeemed, but people from all nations. The Messiah was not just to redeem the Jews but to be the saviour of the world the spirit had given Simeon private assurance that he would not die until he saw the Messiah 
And taking Jesus into his hands, he praised God, saying, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. This seems to have been a private word that he received from the Lord. And it's okay to get such private words from the Lord as long as they're in line with his word. Where the Spirit impresses upon us something that that he speaks to us individually. Simeon knew that the salvation that was promised to God's people was not simply to very limited Jewish nation, but that the Jews, the people of Israel, were the start of a wide salvation which would include people of all nations. That the Saviour, the Messiah, would bring salvation. He would be a light for revelation to the Gentiles. God's word would bring people in from all nations. And he would bring glory to the people of Israel. The community of people through whom the Messiah was birthed, in a sense. Simeon longed for the coming of the Messiah. He longed for the consolation of Israel. He longed for Jesus. And even though he only saw the baby, Jesus, not the full-grown man, he didn't see the, the ministry of miracles and preaching, of teaching, and ultimately going to the cross as a suffering servant, atoning for sin. He knew that this baby was God's answer to his promises. He knew that God would not only resolve the the worldly matters which the zealots were concerned about, but more importantly, the Messiah would resolve the spiritual matters that were far more important, the eternal matters, which the zealots were not as concerned about. Simeon may have thought along the lines of John the Baptist, where, if you remember, John the Baptist was in prison, And he sent messengers to Jesus and said, are you really the Messiah? And many people conclude that John was doubting. He was in prison. It was a dark and depressing place to be and maybe he just doubted in his faith. Well, John the Baptist was more hardy than that. He was not used to plush living. Going into a dungeon cell was not that much more difficult than his life has been used to. But there isn't actually a hint of doubt in what he says. It's more a hint of confusion. Because John the Baptist was looking forward to the coming of the Messiah to bring truth and justice into the world, to right all wrongs, to bring forth a period where there would be no more sin or sorrow any longer. And while that is true, that is what the Messiah would do. John the Baptist didn't realize that the Messiah wasn't just going to come. He was going to come twice. He wasn't going to come simply in judgment and condemnation on those who had sinned. He was first going to come and go to the cross to suffer and die 
for the sins of those who would trust in him. The Messiah wasn't just going to bring justice. The Messiah was going to take God's wrath, God's justice upon himself on the cross in order to dispense grace to all who will turn to him. So Jesus sent messengers back to John the Baptist and says, the lame are healed, the the eyes of the blind are opened, which were indications that he is the Messiah, which was a, a reassurance to John, yes, I am the Messiah, you got it right. Okay, you, you may not have fully understood what my mission and ministry is going to entail, but you did get it right in terms of identifying that, yes, Jesus is the Messiah. We don't know how much Simeon knew, but there are hints in what Simeon has said here that the Messiah would be a light for revelation to the Gentiles. He would bring a light of hope to the nations. That Simeon wasn't simply thinking, maybe along the lines that John the Baptist had been thinking, that the Messiah was going to bring justice, bring everybody to judgment, that they would get what they deserved immediately. That first there was going to be the gospel taken to the nations. And so the consolation that of Israel, the, the longing that Simeon had, was the longing not just for the Messiah to come and free his people, but for the Messiah to come and free many more people to come to faith in Christ. Simeon had a glimpse of all of that. We don't know how much he knew. All we know about Simeon is what we have here in Luke chapter 2. And when we come to God, we sometimes come with the same attitude as the zealots who, who seem to just want justice for a cause. We often come wanting God to solve our worldly problems. We often come with a mindset which is worldly, focused on the here and now. They're doing wrong, God, you need to sort this out. Or we're focused on this cause, Lord, we need you to back us up. When we come to God, we ought to come with the approach of Simeon. Not simply God wanting God to come in judgment, but wanting God to come and be the light to the nations. To not simply come and judge those who are doing wrong. Not simply wanting justice, but wanting justice with grace and mercy. And we can only find that in Jesus. We can only find that in the Saviour who went to the cross. God is just, God is true in all he does. But as we read in Romans 3, God is not only just, but he is the justifier of those who come to him through faith in Christ. Many people who are promoting a cause of justice, there's no mercy in their cause. But we come to a God who has true justice, but with mercy and grace as well as truth. 
So are we waiting on that kind of justice with mercy? We can only have that if we are fixing our eyes upon Jesus. If we are longing for him, if the consolation that comes from him is what we are looking for. In his devotional that we began reading with, Spurgeon had actually begun with a verse from the Song of Solomon. He says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him, I am sick with love. I am longing for him. It's very interesting, the book in the Bible, the Song of Solomon, or Song of Songs, as it's sometimes titled, doesn't really speak much about God. It's about a, a, a groom and a bridegroom. A bride and their beloved. Their relationship of longing, their relationship of seeking one another. And yet that reflects not only the, the glory of a, a relationship within a marriage, that reflects the relationship between the church, the bride of Christ, and Christ himself. Spurgeon writes, Such is the language of the believer, panting after present fellowship with Jesus. He is sick for his Lord. Gracious souls are never perfectly at ease, except when they are in close communion with Christ. For when they are away from him, they lose their peace. The nearer to him, the nearer to the perfect calm of heaven. The nearer to him, the fuller the heart is, not only of peace, but of life and vigor and joy. For these all depend upon constant fellowship with Jesus. What the sun is to the day, what the moon is to the night, what the dew is to the flower, such is Jesus Christ to us. What bread is to the hungry, clothing to the naked, the shadow of a great rock to the traveler in a sun-scorched land, such is Jesus Christ to us. And therefore, if we are not consciously one with him, we should not be surprised if our spirit cries in the words of the song, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I am sick with love. Teenagers are often lovesick, and it's often an infatuation, or sometimes. But our longing for the Lord, even though it uses that old language in Spurgeon's devotional, our longing for the Lord ought to be something similar, of a similar intensity at least. The bride's longing for the groom in the Song of Solomon ought to reflect the church's longing for the Lord. And it reflects how our individual hearts ought to long for him too. We ought to long for the consolation that he will bring, for the presence that we will have with him, for the justice and rule and peace and joy that we will have when he comes again and he will reign and there will be no more sorrow or sin in the world any longer. We ought not only to long for justice, 
But we are also to be longing for the one who is just and the one who ultimately will bring justice. We ought not simply to look for the removal of injustice. We ought to long for the God of justice himself. When we look for justice, if we're honest, if we're true to the cause of justice, we have to admit that that we are on the receiving end of it, naturally because of our sin. And the only way we can truly seek justice, acknowledging that we have done wrong as well, is to seek the Lord, where we can not only see justice done, but also receive grace and mercy ourselves because of what Christ has done on the cross. Because he died on the cross for the injustices, the sins that we have done against God, as well as the injustices that we have done against other people. Only when our sins are forgiven through faith in Christ can we truly seek God's justice instead of our own cause. We ought therefore to long for Jesus and seek that consolation that comes to all who seek him. And we ought to long for those who don't seek him to be found by him, not simply that we would have justice upon them, but that they would know mercy and that their justice, they would know it forgiven because Christ has atoned on the cross for it. The world cannot give that kind of justice. Only God can. So let's not simply look for the removal of injustice in the world and get some temporary successes. It's right to campaign and do what we can, for sure. But above all else, if we look to Jesus, we will gain consolation here and now, as well as his perfect rule in eternity. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are the one who is just. You are the one who is righteous. You know about justice more than any of us. And the thing that you're most concerned about is justice for eternity. Lord, we thank you that you are concerned about the cause of the the widow, the orphan, those who are downtrodden, those who are oppressed. But Lord, your justice in such causes is only a reflection of that eternal justice which we need. We thank you, Father, that you sent your one and only Son so that whosoever believes in him will not perish at the hand of your justice, but will receive eternal life. Lord, we thank you for such great salvation. Help us to share it with others. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.